Hi, this is Abigail Santamaria, author of Joy, Poet, Seeker, and the Woman Who Captivated C.S. Lewis. You're listening to Pints with Jack. You cannot see things till you know roughly what they are. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 8, Arrival. Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 7 and 8. Well, welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm Andrew, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the lovely David and the lovely Matt. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. So we're finally arrived on Mars, and we're looking forward to seeing Ransom as he begins to explore. And I'm really excited about... Uh, the kind of mood, move in mood and tone, and how Lewis deliberately sees through Ransom's eyes. Uh, it's, a, it's a real gift, this chapter. And you'll also learn why you shouldn't exercise on a full stomach and why it's sometimes okay <laughs> to talk <laughs> to yourself, especially <laughs> after drinking a fair bit of whiskey. Yeah, love it. <laughs> Can you tell us about today's episode title, David? Sure. Well, since in today's chapter, Ransom Western Divine Land on Malacandra, I thought it'd be appropriate to name today's episode after the 2016 movie Arrival, starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. That's Hawkeye from the Avengers. And I do have to point out, it's got a cracking soundtrack. So good. I could listen to it for hours. And as we record, uh, I think Jeremy Renner is home from his snowmobile accident. Yeah. And that was, so that was, um, uh, a ski snowplow ski cat one of those Ooh. huge things with like multi treads that usually do he has it for his lake tahoe driveway it almost killed him oh wow yeah he was in critical condition in the icu for a while so what happened is he got out of it tried to help a neighbor and then as he was getting back in the things came out of gear and started going forward and ran over his leg this like oh, wow. metal tread of a ski cat that you know, the plows of a mountain i mean almost destroyed him he got helicapped i mean great to hear he's doing okay or doing well excellent well we're recording on an auspicious day for me um britney white is in town uh in town what, meeting what? orlando she's uh, she's the uh, best i'm so she's jealous fantastic her family's here to do the theme parks and so we're gonna try and go get some ice cream or something tonight and it's also, as I record, the last, uh, my last Saturday before my ordination to the priesthood on Wednesday. So we've got lots of folks coming in town and um, some fun stuff happening this week. This will be the last time I'll be able to say, Andrew, you're wrong. In future, I'll be saying, Father Andrew, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's correct. And the very next morning, I get ordained at 7 p.m. on Wednesday. And the very next morning, not 12 hours later, I'll be on a flight to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And the weather will be nice and chilly, so I'll wear lots of my C.S. Lewis t-shirts. And I'm just going to hang out for the Mere Anglicanism conference. And uh, I've got some rare books to sell. And most importantly, I've got a load of Pints with Jack swag going out. So um, those of you, I hope to see, hope to see... And, uh, and chat with and take some pictures with some of our Pines for Jack listeners. What about you, Matt? What's you, what have, what have you, and David, what have you two been up to? I actually want to say first, I am excited. Even though we've now already recorded like four actual book episodes, I listened to the intro, which as we're recording this, guys, the intro went out this week. Now you won't hear mm -hmm. this episode for probably another four or five weeks, but 
it's really different hearing the dynamic the wisdom that you share, David, you share Andrew, because when you're when you're recording it, you're honestly thinking through what am I going to say? How am I going to bounce off this? I mean, you you you're not fully immersed in it to some degree because you have to be thinking about conciseness and clarity and just it was it was a really fun episode to listen to. I know I feel like we're patting our own backs here, but like <laughs> I got excited. I'm like, this is going to be fun. That was a great episode. We were able to learn a good bit about the book and set some key themes in place. And I'm really looking forward to this, guys. Yeah, me too. And in between this, since our recording as of a couple of days ago, I sent, remember Andrew, you and I had the discussion, which might've gotten cut about Taylor Swift's anti-hero song. Uh-huh. Anti-hero I've, been, I've been, I've <laughs> been sadly, the whole point of this listeners was I've been sadly, you know, I, I will always be a Taylor Swift fan in the sense that it's like that TV show you fell in love with the first few seasons, but the last few haven't been great, but you continue to watch it. That's probably a more accurate description of my <laughs> my relationship with Taylor Swift music. I just, I haven't listened to the last four albums more than once, probably the day they came out. And anyway, so Antihero just released today or a couple days ago with Bleachers, who's one of my top five bands. I love the Bleachers. My brother-in-law showed me them. And so then I sent it to him and he told me the the Bleachers, the singer, the lead singer to it, has been the executive producer on multiple of her albums, particularly 1989, which was like her best one. And I was just very excited. I'm I'm fan right I'll stop it there. I'll stop it. There. The bleachers. Sorry. Go check. Go check out the bleachers. The moral of this is less Taylor Swift. Go check out the bleachers. Their live MTV album is phenomenal. And I just want to know what you mean by best. Actually, no, no, I don't. <laughs> we can rehash that argument later. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, David? The only thing I really think I've got to report is the fact that I've been updating our website some more. The resource pages for Lewis's books have had a bit of a spring clean. So if you go to pintsofjack.com slash books, you'll see a library of most of Lewis's books. And if you click on the book, you'll now take into a very well populated page with all of the commentaries, articles, podcasts, YouTube videos that I can find. So if anybody is about to study a book or wants to go a bit deeper, that's the place to go. Wonderful. I love that you're making uh, the Pints with Jack webpage such a clearinghouse. And I think that, I mean, even if I wasn't involved, which I am, which I gladly am, I think it's a tremendous resource uh, for the Lewis world. Well, and David and I just earlier today did a Patreon, uh, a Patreon meeting with uh, a meeting with one of our Patreon supporters. And I was, I was pleasantly surprised when I came on, he kind of lost a little bit. <laughs> Starstruck. Aww. But he seems to be a very reasonable guy. He's yeah. like, oh man, I'm fanboying right now. Andrew's here. Andrew, I fanboy in every episode. I don't you don't realize how much I have to keep it together. Every time you come <laughs> on, I'm just like starstruck. As a, a soon-to-be S- priest, lying is a sin. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear my confession real quick? <laughs> and since the both of you have clearly been drinking, let's let's talk about what we've got in our glasses at the moment. <laughs> I just took my first sip. What about you, David? Andrew already did a flex with us, so I've, of course, been drinking. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't flex my scotch yet. No, just your quill. Yes, my stick pen. I'm drinking a Jura that was given to me by Malcolm Gite. That's a flex, guys. There we go. And um, I'm excited. I just, uh, just a couple of days ago, while I was on retreat um, before my priesthood, Malcolm uh, wrote me a sonnet for my ordination, 
And then yesterday, Phil Keggy put music to it and uh, and sent it to me. So there's a double flex. I expect you both to be respected biggles before we get halfway through the podcast. <laughs> well, and a bit of trivia. Um, Phil and Malcolm have done some recording together. Um, there will be more on that and both of their pages uh, in the f- near future. And the song that Phil did a couple of passes, uh, but the, the one that I chose is the song that he's actually playing is As the Ruin Falls, which is <laughs> Phil's version of Lewis's poem that he recorded on his 1977 album, Love Broke Through. And uh, I've loved that song. In fact, that helped me to memorize that poem by Lewis. And so it was, and it was, of course, Phil that brought me to Lewis. So it was a whole lot of things weaving together. And that was a joy to hear. So, so Jura for me, David, Matt. I'm drinking a margarita, uh, but <laughs> because I, I see David also has some Ardbeg, I did actually pour myself a small little dram of Ardbeg. So we're both can be blood brothers in this and gang up on Andrew. <laughs> Hopefully we don't okay. bleed at the end of this. <laughs> if we do, there's something wrong with the scotch. Yes. Yes. Gotta be the scotch. Well, and how are we toasting today? We are toasting in Irish. Ah. This one's an interesting one. Is it? Is it pronounced slante? Slansha. You're the one um, who's been oppressing that island for hundreds of years. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Slansha. Okay. Slansha. Well, we're toasting. Isn't that a very, that's a, um, that's, isn't that an Irish name, Ray? So today we are toasting Harry T. Ray, uh, one of our top tier Patreon supporters. And so Harry, we lift our glasses to you and we, we wish you God's best blessings and hope that you too will have plenty of whiskey to drink as Ransom does in this episode. So <laughs> slancha. 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 <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this 100 word summary that I don't see filled in because Andrew's going to wing it brilliantly. <laughs> yeah, I didn't fill in the 100 word story, but here's the 100 word story so far. Out of the Silent Planet, Lewis's first science fiction novel, and in fact, his first novel, concerns the fate of Ed- Elwin Ransom, the Cambridge philologist who meets uh, an old former schoolmate gets kidnapped and taken to a mysterious planet called Malacandra. As he does, he finds himself disabused of many of his old notions and expectations of what he might find in space and begins exploring some of the spiritual ramifications of travel amongst the planets. And in today's chapters, we find him landing on Malacandra and beginning to deal with what he finds there. 96 words. Well done. (laughs) Oh, that's how you do it. There's a (laughs) hundred. That was brilliant. That's how you do it. Actually, that's how you do it would be. All right. Still great. Well, let's start by digging into chapter seven. It's the first couple of paragraphs. So, having spent the landing on Malacandra in a reverie about the nature of space, heaven, and God's very being, Ransom finds himself on the planet and begins to try to make sense of his surroundings. Having contemplated the heavenly realities, he turns now to the earthly realities before him. So, fellas, in the last chapter, we got some lyrical, even rhapsodic passages about what it means to be in space. 
This chapter seems more like a man, the man in the gospel who at first uh, is only partially healed in his sight. What does Ransom see? And what's the relationship between confusion and vision? And, and how accurately do you think Lewis portrays this new reality Ransom faces? He's kind of flummoxed when he first lands. Mm. I do like that biblical comparison where the man first of all sees people walking like trees and then he's prayed for again and then he has his sight fully restored. I compared it to the old days of the internet when you were on dial-up and initially images would come down very pixelated and progressively mm -hmm. become clearer and more comprehensible. When a web page would first mm -hmm. load, you weren't quite sure what it was you're actually even looking at. But I would say that's the, the key element here. There's, there's, there's a progression as he starts to make sense of his senses the, the key pa passage is this one. The very intensity of his desire to take in the new world at a glance defeated itself. He knew nothing yet well enough to see it. You cannot see things till you know roughly what they are. And that was yes. our course of the week. Yes. I want to make clear, the brain was going to say this too, but you know, stole the George <laughs> right from my mouth. Um, I thought he just did. Oh, wait, you meant... <laughs> I might have chuckled at myself multiple times in the intro. <laughs> I really chuckled at Batesian uh, flexibility. Uh, flexibility. He, goes, yes. he literally goes, that's dead. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> um, no, David, that, that, that caught my attention too. And I'll say it brought me back to right or wrong. The I believe it was in Mere Christianity, either in that chap in one of the chapters or at least the conversation you and I had back then of experiential learning. That could have actually been Toya Faces. Mm -hmm. It was. It, it brought me to that idea of when Lewis talks about like theology, the map versus being on the beach. It's like you mm -hmm. can experience this something of God. And I think of that like the colors that haven't yet formed here. And, and, and there's something real to that. There's a beauty. I mean, he is seeing beauty, yet he doesn't quite see everything. Um, but without knowledge of what he's, what it is, he can't see it all yet. And I sort mm -hmm. of thought there was a relation to that. I don't know if I'm stretching a bit here, but that hit me when, when I was reading this section. You know, um, as I was just now, as we were kind of talking it over, it reminds me of other instances of failed seeing in Lewis. And one of the first that comes to mind is, uh, at, after Aslan, has died and then risen again, Susan says very fearfully, Aslan, are you a ghost? And he's the very opposite of a ghost at that moment, right? He's fleshly, he's he's resurrection resurrected, he's bigger, he's he's more glorious than ever. And he's the opposite of an incorporeal spirit, right? He's completely corporeal. He's he's fully uh fully fleshed. And I hadn't really noticed this until now, but the connection between fear and blindness in Lewis. I think that part of Orwell's <clears throat> blindness until we have faces. I was about to deduct points from you for not going to Orwell when she's drinking from the water in the first place. I'm disappointed <laughs> in you, Andrew, but please continue. And we have a flex going on at the same time. This is a double drink. <laughs> Um, no, well, I wasn't, I think that what Orwell sees when she loves, um, when she adopts a position of humility, but she's blinded by her fears, right? And she says in the first page of the book, being for all these reasons free from the fear of God, the gods, but she's afraid of them all the time. 
You also have this moment where the dwarves, you know, kind of fear seeing anything but themselves, and that blinds them. And at the end of the last battle, it's hatred and fear that makes the um, makes the talking animals lose their sentience. Um, but it's love that allows the animals to retain being talking animals. And so there's a, I, you know, and much as we've said several times before, what you see and hear depends a great deal on what sort of person you are. It, but it also depends on where you're standing. Um, I think that there's a connection that I never noticed before, before between fear and blindness or or imperfect vision, right? It w- and we see Ransom terribly afraid, almost to the point of suicide, and not being able to understand clearly what's going on because of that. I see one thing here before we jump on to the next section. Do you guys agree? I was actually curious your thoughts. The statement, we cannot see things till we know roughly what they are. Like, do you 100% agree with that statement? Do you think there's truth to it, but it's a little bit extreme that you can see some things, there's nuance. Um, that did stuck out to me. I mean, there's a quote of our quote of the week and it's a strong statement. Yeah, I think there's a good deal of truth to it. Although I would say that there's a big caveat and we're going to see that in today's chapters and definitely in subsequent mm-hmm. chapters that the frame of reference that you bring to something can often itself blind you because you are presupposing your own frameworks. What makes X, X? What makes Y, Y? And therefore, when you see a slight variation that you're not used to, it can completely throw you because if you have very tight categories. Also, kind of when you see something and you don't have the perspective, you know, when you open your eyes to something, and we've all done this, you know, we've, you know, we catch a glimpse of something and we don't recognize it until we see the pattern. And there's this kind of connection between, and, and I'm sure David, you've noticed it, you know, in it, it, Alexander doesn't really know what he's seeing until he has a reference for it. Um, that that involves so, usually sticking it in his mouth and chewing on it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> at this phase, and we see some of that with Ransom in this, in this paragraph too. But yeah, there's vision is huge with Lewis, and there's a lot about vision and confusion in this in this chapter. But Ransom does start making sense of what he's seeing. In this case, he sees short, mm-hmm. pale pink vegetation, a pale blue sky. He compares it to a winter morning uh, on Earth, mm-hmm. uh, and a rose-colored mass, which he assumes are clouds. And he also mm-hmm. realizes that they're on the shore of some kind of lake or river. When I hear the descriptions that are given, and maybe it's just because I have a one and a half year old, all I can think of is Dr. Seuss books. That's what mm-hmm. Malacandra kind of sounds like. Mm-hmm. And we actually even get yeah. a little Lewisian hint that this place is going to be a good place. Uh, he says yes. it was like a watercolored world out of a child's paint box. And in the Lewis yes. lexicon, Anything to do with children, not boys, but children, is almost always good. The children, the nursery, the nurse, these are always good things yes. in his books. Well, and I draw the comparison a little bit later, but Peter navigates the world. He follows the robin in Narnia because robins are good birds in all the books that he's read. And a lot of those are fairy stories. So we get this, we do get this sense that everything's going to be okay. Um, there's a passage here too. At the end of six, he says, now with a certainty which never after deserted him, he saw the planets, he called them, and it's thought, blah, 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 blah. But we get this sense that he's got a certainty, and that certainty is going to continue. It's not exactly the narrator saying Ransom isn't going to die, but there's a hint that everything's going to be okay. 
Although it doesn't feel like that at the time. And I do have to point out what I think is the best line of this chapter. It might mean death, but what a scaffold. (laughs) And so this is a reference to a hangman's scaffold. It's like he might die, but it's going to be a glorious death. And he sees things well, right? So he's starting to kind of come to his his senses, especially his sense of sight. Sense of sight. So as he starts to make sense of things, having landed on Malakandra, Ransom finds out two things. He's certainly a captive, almost a slave, they put him right to work, and that this other planet contains a strange mix of the everyday and the extraordinarily beautiful. Uh, he finds a hut nearby, and that turns out to be his captor's base camp. It's locked with a very ordinary padlock, and they start unloading all of their supplies. And as they do, Ransom starts to try to make sense of the landscape. So as we've noticed all the way through, Lewis very deliberately uses tone and language um, to convey mood. What do you make of the contrast between the beautiful, colorful, Seussian uh, natural surroundings and the very drab situation Ransom faces at the beginning? I think it's meant to hint to us that perhaps the humans might not be doing the civilizing on this planet. Uh, that their arrival might actually be a step down for Malacandra, not rather than a step up. And I think it also is meant to remind us that Ransom's imagination has been poorly formed. The very mm-hmm. fact that he'd never even considered that this planet could be beautiful. Uh, I think mm. we've got yet more proof that his brain was trained too much by Wells. Mm-hmm. It says, the same peculiar twist of imagination which led him to people the universe with monsters has somehow taught him to expect nothing on a strange planet except rocky desolation or else a network of nightmare machines. He could mm. not say why, <laughs> now he came to think of it. I think it's his reading. His reading hasn't been terrible, but like you Scrub, he hasn't been reading all the right books. No, he hasn't been reading all the right books, but part of why he hasn't been reading all the right books is that they haven't been written yet. So Lewis was a, a, a gluttonous consumer of science fiction, but science fiction doesn't allow for it. And so this book that we are reading is a kind of tonic to the kind of reading that Ransom hasn't done. And it, it echoes or it foreshadows what Eustace, you know, the condemnation of Eustace. He hadn't read the right sort of books. And that phrase, sort, um, reminds of echoes the the comment between Lewis and Tolkien there aren't enough of the sort of books we'd like to read we should write some ourselves and so the act of writing what they're writing spiritual thrillers supernatural thrillers you know interplanetary um, catechisms almost fairy tales that are populated with mythic and true echoes Lewis and Tolkien are really trying to develop a genre that is sadly lacking. And that's, you know, full of excellence and the Christian imagination. And I think it's pretty revolutionary. I might have chuckled at the realization they had of their messiness. Like, oh, hey, this is a little dirtier than I remembered. I'm thinking to myself, do you not remember the place you described like back on <laughs> Earth, the, the silent planet? I mean, this shouldn't be a shocker to them, but I, I, was, I kind of chuckled. There is actually quite a bit of comic relief in this scene, particularly when I thought about the fact that they put a lock on this hut. When they're putting that lock on, they knew that they were about to leave the planet and doing a 72 million mile round, well, it's not round trip, but one way trip to Earth and then back again. Mm-hmm. And so they were guaranteed to be away for months. If someone had wanted to break into that hut, I'm pretty sure a small padlock wouldn't have made much of a difference. <laughs> Maybe that does suggest their negative view of the competence of the 
local creatures. Like, oh, there's no way they will figure out how to break through this. Not so much competence, I think intent. Because if you remember, Divine yeah. would always lock his door when he went mm -hmm. to bed on the ship. And he is technically there mm -hmm. among friends, sort of. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it shows an, an, an essential mistrust because they are mistrustworthy. They are untrustworthy. Um, the idea about dirtiness too, um, I didn't mention it when we got there, but in that chapter, uh, there's this there's this scene where Ransom goes in to tidy up a few things uh, in the galley, you know, in the kitchen. And when he gets there, he finds there was a whole lot more work to be done than he remembered. <laughs> and that's a guy who has done a lot of dishes. And we know from Lewis's diaries um, and from his comments um, that Lewis actually did a fair bit of washing up. And so that to me strikes me as one of those comments that come straight from real life. And usually when I go into my kitchen, I find there's more tidying up to be done than I had thought to. Mm. The washing up is my chief task in our house as well. So I like to feel a little close wow. to Lewis as I'm washing my bajillionth plate. Why can't people reuse that? <laughs> uh, one thing yeah. I did also want to point out was I thought it was interesting Ransom's word choice. When he sees the hut, which Divine and Weston have erected, he says, they're human. Mm. They live on Mars. But that's the only sort of creature that he can actually imagine building a hut. And mm -hmm. I'm just going to point out that as this book progresses, we're going to find a better word to describe this category of creatures, Hanau. Yes. Yes. But I'm jumping ahead. But I did just want to point that out, that his first instinct when he sees something he recognizes is to assume that the other people are exactly like him, and they're not. Yes. Which is sort of the medieval worldview, too, of, or the, the wrong worldview that he's trying to counter is this idea that the, the humans are the best. And when you go further out, you just get to space, nothingness, emptiness. And instead, uh, so that's the bad worldview. And the medieval worldview that Lewis says is honestly, as you get further away from Earth, you get to closer to the heavens and towards the teeming with life and all this positive stuff. So it kind of fits with that as well. Another thing that made me chuckle is the fact that Ransom notes that the water has effervescence. So I'm now regarding Malacandra as planet LaCroix <laughs> or LaCroix yeah. if you're pronouncing it properly. Yes. Or just crap, crap if you're pronouncing it the right way. La crap. La crap. Uh, oh, Spindrift wow. is the far superior oh, uh, beverage. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great. Yes. Well, I'll challenge any of you who have drink, drunk it warm. <laughs> That's a really great way to test and compare. I never thought of that. <laughs> that is your perspective, Matthew. And speaking of perspective, see the way I did it. Uh, <laughs> so much of this book is about Ransom's perspective and his understanding. And... I was chatting with David Downing because I just recorded my interview with him, and he mentioned something that I went and checked. There's an allusion to Chesterton in the description of Ransom's journey. It's mm -hmm. from The Poet and the Lunatics. We were talking about St. Peter, he said. You remember that he was crucified upside down. I've often fancied his humility was rewarded by seeing in death the beautiful vision of his boyhood. He also saw the landscape as it really is, with the stars like flowers and clouds like hills and all men hanging on the mercy of God. Hmm. In this book, we've been told that the, the stars were like a field of daisies before and clouds and hills are a bit mm -hmm. blurry together. And it's all about your point of view mm -hmm. that sometimes perhaps standing on your head is probably the best thing you could do. Mm. Absolutely, especially if the world is upside down and um, we are responsible for setting it right. 
Mm. Well said, Andrew. Yeah, see? And that's not even, you know, two sips in. Thank you, Father Lazo. <laughs> so, <laughs> Ransom, having previously understood that Weston and Divine mean harm to him on Malacandra, he eats a huge lunch and drinks a fair bit of whiskey. Cheers. A uh, man after our own hearts. Cheers. And he steals himself to escape. He finds uh, the opportunity when the three come in contact with six Malachondrian natives, their sorns. And so a panic ransom flees in the chaos. So I think perhaps the most important um, question you know, of this chapter is what kind of whiskey? <laughs> what kind of whiskey? Well, knowing these guys, it's probably going to be something fancy because they like uh, champagne as well. Uh, and oysters. So yeah, I don't yeah. know if there's a whiskey that goes particularly well with oysters, but I imagine that that is what they would be drinking. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I was thinking, you know, these these gentlemen, they've poor taste in worldview, poor taste in treating human beings. I figured they have poor taste in scotch and would like Lagavulin 16. Ooh, them be okay. fighting words. Nice. <laughs> Definitely not McAllen. They wouldn't be. I mean, that's sophistication. That's like truth. That's reality. That's just like getting it right. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. No, but whatever. Um, even if it was Lagavulin 16, let me point out that the book was written 85 years ago. So it would now be Lagavulin 101 <laughs> and there's sophistication for you. Yeah, you're right. And any scotch, peaty or smooth at 101 is going to be delicious. <laughs> Absolutely. This is just part of Andrew's general apologetic defending anything that's old. <laughs> oh, wow. In including myself. I didn't say that. I would have been angry if I I would have been angry if I had heard that comment. <laughs> so be careful. I'm gonna throw my tennis balls at you from the bottom of my walker. More seriously, what do you all make of the creatures that they find and their interaction with them? Well, once again, we've got confused vision. He mistakes the mm -hmm. six sorns for plants, like like the blind man in the mm -hmm. gospel, walking trees. Uh, and once again, he was expecting the wrong thing. In this case, he's was expecting aliens who looked like insects and reptiles, and he was therefore looking in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And we're told that they were white. They're probably between 12 and 18 feet tall. They're humanoid figures, so they look sort of like us, but they're top-heavy and they've got long faces and noses. He compares them to cave paintings. Uh, and I think we've got a little bit of the uncanny valley going on here. This is one of the reasons that they scare him, because they look sort of like human, but not. In the same way, when you mm -hmm. watch an animation where they try and do a human face, it looks creepy because it's sort of looking like a human, but not quite. Yeah. And I did actually wonder if when he mentions the Sorn's voices, whether that was a self-deprecating joke, because we're told they, that they were like horns. And I've often heard people describe mm. Lewis's voice as booming. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I get the connection. Well, the idea of a, of a, of a booming horn-like voice that uh, oh, the des okay. a description that was yeah. used of Lewis is his description of these aliens. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, the, the key thing that I, I get from this interaction, this perception, is he's got an anthropocentric point of view. He's expecting human things. Yes. And when he sees things that aren't yes. quite human, that are slightly uncanny, they scare him to death. Well, and one of the things I noticed in this chapter too is that, and I'm sorry, this is a huge spoiler alert. So I apologize if you haven't read on to further chapters other than chapter eight 
or even this far, but I'm going to spoil a major, major piece right now. The gravity is lighter and that means things grow taller. And so he spends a lot of confusion kind of wondering about how the waves or the piles of dirt or the sorns or the, you know, and it's just because of the gravity that things can be slenderer and don't have to be so stocky because they can elevate because there's less gravity. Fun fact, Martian gravity is 38% of that of Earth. I looked it up. Yes. Nice. I don't know if Lewis could have known that, <laughs> um, but probably, but of course assumed. You know, a lot of this from here, I mean, a lot of this whole chapter, but particularly this section made me think of The Great Divorce, which was written later, correct, Andrew? Much later? Yeah. So 46, That 45. was, and yet you said this was 38, I think, uh, from the intro. And he employs a similar tactic. If you think about what's The Great Divorce, you come in with this preconceived reality or worldview that you've developed, mm -hmm. and then the whole book is a, is the painful transition to ultimate reality. Well, it's not quite like some theological truth that he's doing. He's coming with these wrong, poorly informed, I think was the word Andrew used. I mean, David used imagination of what the stuff mm -hmm. is, these misplaced fears, these irrational fears, and now he's presented with reality. And there's the question of, are you open to receiving it and changing, or are you a Weston and divine and you're not? And I think there's, I, I see that that tension playing out here as well uh, a little bit in, in, a, in a lesser degree for sure than The Great Divorce, but it does remind me of that a bit. Hmm. You know, I hadn't thought about it in those terms particularly, but I did write in the margin of my book, the thing that you learn in Shakespeare 101, expectation versus reality. Yes. Right. And he's got these expectations. They are informed by nothing except for cheap science fiction novels. Yes. <laughs> assuming that Ransom has even read that. But remember Diggory's comment, just think of what another world might mean, you might find anything. And part of what Ransom is doing, he has this kind of stayed sober life and he's in control. Mm -hmm. He's a single, he's a bachelor. He's got a job that he does well at. You know, he's a professor, he's, you know, and, and knows what's coming. And so here are a lot of things that he doesn't know, he's not aware of, and he has these expectations that are only hastily informed. And I think that that's part of what we, that can, that can cause some spiritual suffering for us too. Mm. We have expectations of how God is going to be. We have expectations of how our life's going to be. And it's like screw tape. We think of, we have an imagined future. We have a dozen of them and none of them are actually exactly what, you know, how things are when we get there. So I think his expectations are, are getting, are, are doing him in a little bit, but those will, those will shift uh, fairly, fairly quickly in the coming chapters. Because reality is iconoclastic. Plastic. <laughs> yes. Boom. So. Um, well, and two, this reminds me of, for people who end up uh, purchasing the book that Diana Glyer uh, edited of those compiled essays. One of them is on this idea of how Lewis is attempting to communicate here the proper method to like exploration of truth. And I can't remember exactly what the title of the chapter was or the essay was in that book, but the idea was you can come to this planet like a divine in a Weston with very no openness in the very like the scientific method. I know what it is. I know what it is, testable and just very closed off. Or you can approach life in the worldview and truth through very openness and understanding, seek to understand first. And 
the whole thing was about how you see that with Ransom. I mean, this is all foreign. This is completely against his worldview. And he's incredibly mm-hmm. open. He's having conversations, dialogue, seeking to challenge what he believes and open to being uh, changed. And that was at least according to this essay, one of the, I think, 10 in that book was exactly that, that Lewis is trying to communicate that through this. Sure. Well, and we know and we find out that Weston and Divine both have uses for the planet. And Ransom doesn't have, he's not trying to use it. He's trying to receive it as it is. Mm, good word. And although it's a struggle for him at first, and that's straight out of experimenting criticism. It's, you know, he's giving himself over to the experience rather than trying to conform the experience into what he wants it to be. Mm. So, well, let's dive into chapter eight um, before our time runs out. And at the beginning section, uh, we find Ransom escaping. And much like in the, ch- the children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they head off into an unknown, dangerous, natural environment. But he begins to make some sense of his world, and he finds that his expectations, as we just talked about, of what alien might mean, they kind of change when he meets the reality. And it kind of s- summarized uh, what happens, and we learn more about Ransom, because it says he prayed and felt his knife now determined uh, to to figure out his senses and to survive. So how does this passage uh, illustrate the point that Lewis later makes about time, that the Lord wants us to deal with the present moment or with eternity, while the enemy wants us looking backwards and forwards? This is a transition moment for him. Hmm. Question was a bit deep for me. Um, <laughs> genuinely, but no, it, I, I did think of, I think of uh, the spiritual examine examines of conscience you can do mm-hmm. at the end of the day where you focus on the rhythms and the way you see God influencing your life if you really just sit in the present moment. And here I got that sense a little bit, uh, particularly when he says, this is actually a little bit after this section, but he did not know why he should cross them, but for some reason he did. It's like he was sort of in the present moment. There's some sort of influence going on. He's tapping into this. Yep. energy we know it to be something more than that but at this stage we're still sort of in the dark but there's some sort of sweet influence going on and if you're willing to listen to it and to be influenced by it uh it can kind of move you so yeah i had a little bit of of that thought for sure andrew well and we see this arc from panic even suicide so from panic and despair and by the end of the book he um feels uh he he his belief is strengthened and he also feels at home. You know, as he flies off the planet, he looks to see if he can find that spot where he spent so much time. And so you can kind of see a trajectory of how he's experiencing it. Um, and I, I hope if I, you know, ever encounter such a thing that I do it as well as Ransom does here. Other lessons that we get early on in this? Well, I actually have a great divorce uh, point of contact here uh, because we haven't actually said why he left. There you go. Because <laughs> um, in your earlier summary, you said that there were six Malachandrian natives, but there's actually seven. There was something in the water that rushed towards them, mm. which caused all this chaos. Right. And right. it actually reminds me of the unicorns. When, the, when, they, when they come and scare mm-hmm. the life out, or actually rather scare the life into one of the ghosts. Mm-hmm. Because up until that point, she was self-obsessed, and a fear of death seems to have snapped her out of it. Or at least that's what we're, I think, led to believe. And you actually see that transition mm-hmm. in Ransom's attitude. Because if he had actually wanted to kill himself rather than be handed over to the, to the Sorns, 
that scary thing in the water would actually mean perfect. But instead, he runs, he seeks to preserve his life. And I, I detect something of an attitude change in him as he's now proceeding forward that mm -hmm. he actually wants to live. Yes. No, there's, there's, he's, he's coming to his senses, you know, as, as he goes through. I assume that was the, uh, I might be wrong because we don't fully know, but the shark-like creature that we learn about later as in the water that charges Hanakra. you straight down. The Hanakra. Yeah, that thingy. And it becomes a Hanakrapunt. <laughs> oh, by the way, Matt, I will be testing you on your Malachandrian grammar and vocabulary as this season progresses. <laughs> oh, just give me an- It's okay. Ransom wrote a dictionary of it. And you can find so. most of it on pintsofjack.com. Ooh, should, there should we make go. make like a trivia game around it or something. Oh, I- Yeah. Get out of my brain. This there will be happening go. later in the season. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like a, like a, um, a Jeopardy or something? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good. Well, so after he flees, he finds himself more or less safely in the Malachandrian wilderness. And as he finds himself there, he continues to try to make sense of the world in which he wanders. He contemplates the planet on which he finds himself. He begins to realize that night is coming. So what we find is that he is, first of all, analytical, which is perhaps not what not, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, a philologist is as much a scientist as anything else. But even as he analyzes, he, uh, he has this contemplative moment. He has prayed. He's meditated, the scripture says. Um, even in the landing, he's engaged in philosophical contemplation. And so what we see is, and we see in screw tape, this idea that mind should drive emotion, not emotion driving the mind. And even more viscerally, he's kind of trying to come into, this is, this is, I thought was right in your wheelhouse, Matt. He's trying to come into mind-body balance here. Mm. So what do you make of this progression for him? Well, I wondered, I'm not sure. I mean, you kind of, I think, explained it pretty well of what to make of it is Lewis is trying to paint it in a positive light. I wonder, going back to what we were just talking about a little bit before, of one of the things that Diana Glyer's book, one of the essays that that she compiled, wrote was how we're. And I think I asked her this question too, Andrew, on it was, you know, what? Okay, we see these competing worldviews—one really negative, one really positive. Let's say we're convinced by this that the the more modern worldview is not attractive and the one that's being presented is attractive. Wh what do we learn we're supposed to do? You know, how are we supposed to receive mm -hmm. this act? And that was kind mm -hmm. of, and she brought up that essay, was kind of the point of it was this book also sort of allows you to get an idea of how you're supposed to approach these kind of interactions. And so I guess maybe the short answer or the, what I'm trying to say is, the body, mind, balance, everything you just said, pray, meditative, philosophical contemplation are important tools and instruments towards seeing properly, ordering your life properly, being in mm -hmm. intimacy with truth and being open-minded, receiving things, the stuff we just talked about in the last section of being open-minded versus a Western and divine, not coming with a, an agenda, being willing to adapt. I mean, I, th I just think maybe it's just Lewis trying to communicate a, a good orientation Mm -hmm. to operate in your daily life. And that's how you're open to seeing things properly. If we go back to David's big point in the beginning, confusion of how you see. I mean, this is how you should orient mm -hmm. your life. Well, and then we also know in screw tape, not many years in it, uh, you know, not many years after this book, that there's this connection between what you think and what sort of doing you should have. And so 
uh, Ransom is really starting to get there. Although there's some, some, a little bit of disembodiment that I want to get to. What else about this, this section? I love your point about David, about the unseen hand. Well, one of the things that I saw in this was again, an indication that there's perhaps an unseen hand guiding him this point in the text. And it says it several times, he did not know why he should cross them, why he should go in a particular direction, but for some mm -hmm. reason he did. Uh, and it, mm -hmm. it, every time I read a, uh, a sentence like that, it makes me think of the Silmarillion where Iluvatar, who is God, he says that basically anything that the enemy is going to, use, to do, he says, it shall be but mine instrument. Basically, I'm gonna use it regardless, that there is providence mm -hmm. at work here that perhaps he was meant to come to Malacandra mm -hmm. and then perhaps that whatever brought him to Malacandra yes. is guiding him still. Well, and I wrote in the margin, that's the Holy Spirit and he calls on God. And so that, by the way, is the first, as far as we know, the first human extraterrestrial prayer. <laughs> and his prayer immediately gives unseen, almost un unfelt guidance. He gets this sense. And so, um, and that's part of, I think, what Lewis is, Lewis is, is after. So, well, the chapter wraps up, gets close to the end, and he stops where the chapter stops. He, uh, he finds some water. And so having fled all day, he finds himself running out of steam. And even as the day itself is running out of steam, he's hungry, he's lonely, he's tired. He's surrounded by fear of nature surrounding him. He doesn't know if he's walking into danger or away from danger. And there's, you know, this, I'm sure that this idea of being afraid all day finds him exhausted. But it's fear, not terror, which is what had overtaken him. He's progressing. And part of how he copes with his terror is he begins to use language. He yawns out loud and hears the first ter terrestrial sound he's seen since he started to flee. Am I making these earthly sounds? He kind of reveals that he's in a little shaky state. And so he, he has his own golem moment, right? He almost seems like he's teetering on the edge of sanity. And so what do you think about this moment where he starts talking to himself or finding himself? In the past, whenever anybody heard me talking to myself and they called me out on it, I said, yes, I talked to myself. It's the only way I can guarantee sensible conversation around here. Oh my <laughs> goodness, David wow, Bates. That was before you got married, well, right? We definitely. Um, are we going to call this Batesian <laughs> sensibility? Yeah. Yes, there we go. <laughs> Batesian sense is shut up. Um, it, but more seriously, I, I don't think I've mentioned this before on the show, but I suffer from very bad uh, OCD in my, uh, in my early mm -hmm. 20s. And there is actually something very comforting about hearing your own voice and hearing some sort of reassurance from yourself. So mm -hmm. as to whether or not he's teaching on the edge of sanity, maybe, but I think this is definitely comforting to him and perhaps mm. rooting him again in himself because he's surrounded by everything that's so alien. I can definitely say, say for example, that when I came to the States and I was feeling a little bit overwhelmed by everything, I would try and reconnect with my roots. And that was mm -hmm. typically mean I'd go to Shakespeare's pub, which was a British pub in San Diego. And I'd have some fish and chips mm -hmm. and some mushy mm -hmm. peas. And I would feel more myself again because everything else around me was so, in this case, literally alien. Yeah. Well, and Ransom finds his way by using language. 
And that, I think, um, is a huge clue to what the Inklings are about. Um, and the, there's a battle for language in the modernist period, even right, right during when this book is being written. And the way that he begins to make sense of the world is he begins speaking. And we'll find soon more of the ways that language kind of offers him a handhold or a safety net. Um, but he uses language to help make sense of things. You know, I was going to ask you two gentlemen about if if there was something deeper to one, the talking to himself was Lewis trying to tell us something. And then two, the comment about the water seemed to be descending a little bit more slowly than the incline suggested. Mm -hmm. And then Andrew, I think to what you said earlier, maybe sometimes I, I can, it can be tempting to read too much into stuff. If the gravity is just a lot less and he's just operating under this steep incline should cause this much decline and, and earth on a planet that's 38% the gravitational pull, according to David, it's not going to fall as fast. And maybe, maybe uh, that was one of the few yeah. things I underlined, but maybe it's just, there's, there's nothing to it. It's just less gravitational yeah. pull. Mm. And he was just too tired to think about it. And like with David's example, you know, everything seems foreign and anybody who's spent time in a foreign country, especially one where they don't speak, you don't speak the language, it's exhausting to have no kind of familiar frame of reference. Um, it reminds me of the recovery slogan, HALT. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you should stop and you should care for those needs. Um, and that's, I think, a, a very practical bit of advice. And I'm not sure if Lewis knew that, but here we find Ransom certainly hungry, certainly lonely, certainly tired, um, and even thirsty. And he pauses and he stops and does what he can. He finds some warmth in the rivers. And so here his prayer is answered for, uh, for some shelter, even if he didn't specifically ask for it. And Malachandra itself is doing whatever it can to kind of give him a peaceful night's sleep. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why he winds his clock. Because mm -hmm. it does seem sort of a pointless thing to do, because he's not sure mm -hmm. how time works on this planet. But I think it's mm -hmm. a connection to what he's done every day of his life. Otherwise, is to mm -hmm. wind his clock. And also, by winding his watch, he has now introduced a, a measure of order into the chaos. Although he mm -hmm. does not know what time it is, at least he knows what time he started his watch. Right. And it has been kind of vague and amorphous, but now he begins to use the tools that he has and brought with him to at least begin to set up some sort of order. I don't know if it mentions his watch later in the book, but now from being this kind of timelessness, he's gotten back onto some kind of schedule that he can control by fiddling with his wrist. And the only other point that I had written next to this section was I think we get a little bit of an echo from Surprised by Joy. Because in mm -hmm. Lewis's autobiography, he speaks about how lonely he was at school. He speaks about mm -hmm. looking up at the moon through the window, the curtainless windows. And mm -hmm. that seems to be a real echo of what we read here, that the sound of his own yawning, the sound heard in night nurseries, school dormitories, and in so many bedrooms, liberated a flood of self-pity. He drew up his knees mm -hmm. and hugged himself. He felt a sort of physical, almost mm -hmm. filial love of his own body. I think there is an mm -hmm. echo of the homesick Irish boy at boarding school in Ransom's yes. loneliness and desolation for being stranded so far from home. Hmm. But it also suggests, I think, an encouraging kind of almost incarnational soothing. He connects himself with his body and the body can be trusted. 
right? It's uh, in mere Christianity, Lewis said, it's Mohammedism, not Christianity that doesn't like the body. And so he's doing what he can with what he has and what he ultimately has is himself, right? And he's embracing his own incarnation. And I think it's, you know, not too far a stretch to think that he's embracing the embodiedness of it and finds some more strength for his faith later on. And so he at least reduces himself to who he is and who he has been created. And he receives and embraces it rather than rejects it, um, even at the end of a terribly long day. One thing that probably is worth pointing out, the reference to Mohammedism in mere Christianity, it's about teetotalism, not hatred of the body. But right. he says he right. says elsewhere that Christianity clearly loves the body because God declared it good and God God took on one of His own. Yeah, yeah. It's um. He's yeah. Mohammedism. He says is the teetotal religion, and then somewhere nearby there he says something about um, it's the the Christian celebration of the body, and most of the love poems and the the erotic poems have been written by Christians, and so it's this kind of embrace rather than disdain for the body. And we see this a literal embrace um, that I think will serve Ransom in good stead in coming chapters right here at the end. Well, as Ransom gets some rest, so will we. But before we go, is there anything else you'd like to add? I would just like to say check out Murphy Thelen's production of Out of the Silent Planet. It's starring his kids and their friends. So you have these little kids playing Ransom and Weston and Divine. It's kind of like Bugsy Malone in space. And part one of that pretty much brings us up to this point in the book. So now's a good time to watch it. I'll make sure that there are links in the show notes. Excellent. Well, and I know that our friends at the Anselm Society are doing Paralandra as part of their book club, and I know that others have been dipping in. And so I hope they find this resource uh, helpful too. Well, my concluding question um, for our listeners is a question about self-care. Halt, how does our physical condition, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, how does your physical condition move your mental and spiritual states? And what can we learn about ourselves and our connection between our souls and our bodies from, from what we find with Ransom here? I was just talking about uh, Discernment of Spirits by Father Timothy Gallagher, which is on the Nation Discernment of Spirits. So very timely question. I was talking about at breakfast. Excellent. Maybe it was that same nudge having prayed. Uh, that Maybe Ransom I need to read had. the book. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Well, feel free to email us. We always welcome hearing from you. Contact at pintswithjack.com or use the contact us form on the website. Comment uh, on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, MySpace. So we're always available to you all. Well, and I hear the, the final call, the last call for final drinks. So thank you to our listeners, uh, our Patreon supporters, and particularly our top tier supporters who include Matt and Jake, James and Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah and Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Bill, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly and Gillis, Gary and Stephen, Matt and Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, uh, Peter, David, Angela and Rowdy. And David, is that Matt, our Matt from today? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, especially cheers to you, Matt. I told you I'd check you out. So we also pray for our listeners and we pray for all the requests that we receive on our Slack channel. Uh, we pray for those every Tuesday. And I mentioned Pints with Jack in my daily prayers. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please write us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. And guys, join us next time 
when we'll be going further up and further in. Slante. Schlanche. Schlanche. Oh, that's how it was. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>